everybody, and welcome to another episode of Getting Close with Mike Marbach. I have a few quick things I want to say before we get to the interview portion of the show. Uh, and the first few things revolve around the Philly Improv Theater. Hello, Aria. That's my cat. Uh, of which I am the education director. Um, education director of the Philly Improv Theater, not of my cat. Although I have taught her many things. Uh, she's a cat, but she can... Uh, sit, she can roll over. Um, but that's besides the point. I'm the education director of the Philly Improv Theater, and we were in the news. Uh, we got a couple good articles with our name mentioned uh, within them, uh, and that's pretty awesome. Uh, the first article was an article that kind of featured John Hansen. John Hansen is a former student. Uh, but he's also the CEO of the Delaware River Port Authority. And the article centered around him because he took improv classes at FIT, uh, and he still does. He kind of comes in for workshops and everything and uh, takes other classes from time to time. Uh, but how improv has helped him uh, not just in his position uh, or in business in general, but also in life. Uh, and I think that's a pretty awesome message to have out there, that, that improv isn't just for people uh, that are in their, their 20s and, uh, you know, kind of goofballs, um, or in my case, uh, in their 30s and kind of uh, goofballs, um, or people that are looking to be on Saturday Night Live. Improv really is for everyone. There's something in it for everyone, whether you are the CEO of a company uh, or in your 20s and unemployed, uh, or a teacher, or a lawyer. Uh, there's something in it for, for everyone. Uh, and at worst, it's uh, a chance to meet new people and have some fun experiences. Uh, so that was the first article, and I think that's pretty awesome. So a shout-out to John Hansen for, uh, for that. The other article was centered around seniors uh, and how improv can benefit uh, you know, the senior population. And I think that's another that's another really cool thing about uh, about improv. Uh, I don't mean to get all preachy. Uh, as I've said, I've already disclosed that I'm the education director of the Philly Improv Theater and also my cat. But it's true. There's something in improv for everybody. Uh, and as it as it happens, uh, Fit just put up. We just put up a class for seniors, specifically designed for seniors, uh, and it's called Keep Laughing. Improv 101 for Seniors, and it's for people over the age of 55, and uh, it's just a chance for a lot of uh, people to of that age or over uh, to get together into one class. Now, people are still welcome to take any of our other classes. Um, all of our classes are pretty well mixed um, between of, you know, ages, um, but we have gotten a lot of feedback from people that age and over that say that they would prefer to be in a class with people around their age. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to try it out. Uh, it's going to run Wednesdays from 4 to 6 p.m. starting on August 19th. So uh, you can find out more information on that class uh, at phillyimprovtheater.com. Now, this episode of Getting Close features Andrew Stober. Andrew is a former performer of the Philly Improv Theater as well as a current candidate for the City Council of Philadelphia. Uh, and it's a pretty great episode for that reason to have two, those two different sides of things because part of the conversation is all about improv and comedy. The other section is more heavy kind of political 
uh, discussions, uh, and I loved it. It's got to be one of my favorite episodes uh, because I have a great interest in politics. I keep toying with the idea of toying with the idea of getting into getting more involved in politics, uh, and it was great to talk with someone who's so knowledgeable. So I get to ask questions and get answers uh, and uh, get corrected on things. I learn something. Uh, so if uh, I guess if you're listening to this and you need someone to talk to a politician in front of a microphone or anyone in a suit, really, uh, just let me know. Um, but Andrew was really kind uh, and uh, really walked me through a lot of these things. I didn't do much editing because I think it's all very helpful. Uh, it's all very helpful things. Uh, some of it's a little bit little dry because it's a uh, processes stuff that he was kind of going, uh, walking me through. Um, but again, it just kind of shows how knowledgeable he really is about the system uh, and how to get things done within within the city of Philadelphia. Um, for more information about Andrew, uh, rather than just listening to the rest of this podcast, you can go to andrewstober.com where you can read up on him, you can um, vol- volunteer, you can donate. Um, there's a list of events that he's going to be at. Um, for example, he's going to be at the Liberty Block Party on July 3rd, uh, which would be today, Friday, July 3rd, because this is posting then. Uh, that's at 5.30 p.m., so you can meet him there. You can meet him at the party on the parkway on the 4th. Uh, and he's also going to be at the Reminders Day block party on Sunday, July 5th at 1 p.m., which is right at 13th and Locust. So if you haven't gotten a look at the awesome uh, Rainbow cro- Crosswalks, so if you haven't gotten a look at the awesome Rainbow Crosswalks yet, uh, you can see the crosswalks and you can meet Andrew at the same time. Um, so there's lots of ways that you can uh, read up on him. Um, but uh, you can also read his name on the ballot in, uh, in November uh, and help him out that way as well. Uh, for now, enjoy as I get close with Andrew Stober. All right, you ready? All right, yeah. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to Getting Close with Mike Marbeck. I am Mike Marbeck, and I'm joined today by uh, a former Fit Company member and current uh, candid- candidate uh, for City Council, Andrew Stober. Mike, good to be with you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I want to talk a little bit first about your performance history with the theater uh, yeah. and any performance mm-hmm. history you might have outside of FIT. But you did, uh, it was Fletcher. Correct. That right? was my first my first group with FIT. How did you get involved with, uh, with improv at all? Mm-hmm. And then how did you find your way to be on Fletcher? Yeah, so when I graduated from college, I moved uh, down to D.C., and I was living in a group house in D.C., and one of my housemates' boyfriends was uh, playing piano for uh, an improv group at Washington Improv Theater. And she was like, oh, I'm going to, you know, watch my boyfriend's show. You should, you should come with me. So I was like, oh, sure. I didn't have anything to do. So I saw it, and, um, and it was awesome. And, uh, and at the end of the show, like every improv show at every credible improv theater all across America and probably the world, they said, did that look like fun? If yeah. so, you should take one of our classes. Yeah. And, uh, and that's kind of how it all got started for me at, at, uh, at WIT down in D.C. I went through the five classes, um, joined a troupe there, student taught, um, student taught there, and then 
left D.C. to go up to uh, grad school back again in Boston, moved out to Denver, Colorado to be with my now wife and um, auditioned and joined a team and took some classes at the Bovine Metropolis Theater out mm-hmm. in um, out in Denver. And then when we moved here to Philly, looked up the improv scene and um, and auditioned. Just Googled improv Googled improv, improv Philadelphia <laughs> and fit came up, uh, signed up for an audition and uh, got to join Fletcher. So you didn't, you hadn't been through any fit classes at the time. You just no, started. I hadn't been through any fit classes um, at the time I'd gone through. And this was a, a few years ago where the scene in Philly was a little thinner oh, than it is. Quite thin. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But it is today. I don't think I could just have moved here from Denver today and auditioned for a group. It's very <laughs> and unlikely. Got, and gotten on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I had the advantage of things being a little less competitive then in terms of getting to, you know, getting to perform so quickly, though I had been doing it for, you know, at that point, um, six or seven years. Yeah. Um, About and, what year was this? This was 2009. Okay. So it's a while ago now. Yeah. Um, and got to work uh, with Scott Shepard, was the director. Of the, I mean, he was, he was basically a toddler at the time. Um <laughs> Directing our group, yeah, uh, and, and this was one of the first Fit House teams. Yes, this was one uh, of the first Fit House part, teams. It was, it was Fletcher Activity Book mm-hmm. and Everything Must Go. If I remember, yeah, correctly. I think that's right. Uh, I think it was those three. If I'm forgetting another team, sorry, yeah, uh, sorry, uh, but yeah, Scott Shepard uh, was director. What was it? Mm-hmm. What was the experience like on Fletcher? Um, the experience on Fletcher was great. So let me see if I can remember. Kristen Shear was on uh, the team with me. I mean, this is basically like, at this point, it's like the elder statesman of <laughs> yeah, yeah. Philadelphia improv. Some of us have sort of passed away from the improv scene. But um, Emily Davis, mm-hmm. Dan Rich. Um, Andy Moskowitz. Andy Moskowitz was in Fletcher. Joe Sabatino. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, it was it was great. It was a lot of fun, and Scott just brings this like clownish um, type energy, which was uh, which was awesome. Cool. Uh, were you on the team when? Yeah, I guess you would have been on the team when it was uh, when it ended. Mm-hmm. Um, what What do you feel brought about the the end of Fletcher? Because it ran for a while. Yeah, it ran for a while. You know, I am. Uh, I am generally of the philosophy that improv groups should not go on forever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can have a, a really good run. It's probably, you know, if everything's gelling, it's probably a year, maybe 18 months, maybe longer. And then it's time to just like hit the refresh button and and mix everybody up because there's something that's great that comes from the connection that you've built and how you can really hit things mm-hmm. um, uh, because you're so connected. But at the same time, you know, I think even the strongest performers, you start to get comfortable. You start to replay a lot of the, you know, similar tropes that uh, and scenes that mm-hmm. your, your group can have. And... Um, you know, it's good to either be bringing in new blood if you've decided to build a, you know, if a, if a company has decided to build a brand around a team and kind of switch the people up so it's a new cast, or for just the team to to find some 
some find its place in history. Yeah. Yeah, I did Asteroid, which mm-hmm. ran for yeah. three and a half years at, at FIT. Uh, and there were times, for sure, where it seemed like things were getting a little too stale. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, that's when we, we'd start to switch things up. Not yeah. the cast, but right. what, what, what we were doing. Like yeah. we did Study Hall, which is now a FIT show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did the improvised B-movie, yep. which was always uh, just to kind of keep people challenged. Yeah. So they didn't get... Yep. Um, uh, too too lazy, mm-hmm. uh, too predictable, uh, and then I feel like doing things like that also extends the, the life beyond that. Uh, and you really and that frame. it falls so much on a director having a creative vision. Yeah. Um, but then also on, uh, and this is a place where it can come up with, and it you know you executed it really well with uh, Asteroid. I had the privilege of being directed by you for a summer and, and a few <laughs> yeah. times, and I loved every time um, you directed. Uh, you have to have a director with an artistic vision, and you have to have a cast that wants to go along. Yeah, that's that's even I think even bigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and if you don't have the cast that wants to go along, yeah, I think it's okay. But then you need a cast that's that's yeah. signing up for that for that vision, and you right. don't have to like every director's vision. But then you yeah. don't have to be in the group either. You yeah, know, no one's no one's forcing you to do yeah improv. Yeah. Uh, so Fletcher ends mm-hmm. uh, in between that, and you get on the hot dish. Yeah. Um, was there any anything else you were involved in? Yeah. So uh, I don't remember the exact timing of it, um, but Christian Sher, Emily Davis, and I had a trio um, called Menage. Mm-hmm. I wanted to call it Menage Ha. <laughs> That was a little too corny for the classier, uh, classier members of this trio, uh, Emily and Kristen, um, and so we just went with Menage, um, and I actually think that group emerged from. There were a few times, and I think it was with Fletcher, actually, not with Hot Dish, where. You know, just stuff going on in in people's lives, and we would show up at the theater, and it was just the three of us there mm-hmm. to perform. People had moved away; yeah. people, you know, needed to work to to make a living, and it was the three of us performing. We were like, "Wow, that was really fun. We should keep doing this." Yeah. And so we we did that for about a year, um, and we went up to it must have been like six Saturdays, something like that. We went up to the Magnet Theater. Um, in New York and got some coaching for just the the three of us. That was really fun. Cool. Yeah. Uh, So then you did uh, auditions again. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were cast on Hot Dish, directed by Steve Kleinedler, Mm -hmm. a friend of the podcast, Steve Kleinedler. Yeah. I just did one with him a few weeks ago. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that experience, maybe from the audition process, um, how it varied, not varied, but how it changed from your first audition process. Mm. Uh, with Fletcher because there's years in between yeah, uh, and there's a lot of growth in the Philadelphia comedy scene yes. at the time uh, so what's up with Hot Dish? So it's funny that you say that because I remember the first audition and coming home and saying to my wife I'd be really surprised if they don't cast me <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling and and I got casted which is good but then I remember auditioning for Hot Dish I thought I had a good audition and I remember coming home and, and saying to Karen, like, I'm not sure 
I'm going to get on a team. I mean, you know, Emily and Kristen and I will be able to keep performing, but like, I'm, it's a lot more competitive than it was uh, two or three, two or three years ago. Um, and so thankfully Steve took pity on me. Um, <laughs> and, um, and let me, uh, and let me on to what became hot dish. Um, and I don't, it's, it's funny. I don't remember the early days of hot dish, but I do, uh, what I do remember is our friend show, um, backstory that we did backstory, which was still probably my greatest improv, um, experience. Um, it was really fun to work in that, to work in that crazy form. How would you describe that form? So the form was um, sort of inspired by the movie Memento. So we'd get a suggestion. We would start, you know, start, start from the end and end at the beginning. You know, kind of lots of people try to do that. But it also had this arc where you, the first scene was a minute. The second scene was two minutes. The third scene was four minutes. The fifth scene was eight minutes. Then there was another eight-minute scene, then a four-minute scene, then a two-minute scene, and then a one-minute scene to end it. So you had a kind of longer show than you'd usually have. I think, and I think I got that. I think I got that arc right. Maybe it went up to ten minutes. I'm not sure. But uh, and you had those scenes had to be that. Length, so it was a little you know different than a lot of the free form yeah. um, improv that that you see uh, in terms of long form shows. In that you really had to hit these time marks, and the pacing was really different. So yeah. you really had you know that first scene you had to get there quickly in a minute and yeah. make make it meaningful. And then in those two back to back eight minute scenes, there was no. Things weren't going well. There was no sweep. There was no like, oh, let me go leave out this uh, this door in the back. Um, you had eight minutes uh, up there, and so you had to pace yourself. And that's a long uh, time for that. Eight minutes is a long time. And then, oh, by the way, there's another eight minute scene. <laughs> um, so that was a. It was just a great challenge, um, and we had just some spectacular shows that that came out of that cool. really really fun uh, what about the regular run of, of Hot Dish mm-hmm. how, do, how do you feel about that um, you know I, I honestly don't remember <laughs> that well oh, oh the politician um, yeah <laughs> the politician you know I, uh, I don't have a recollection yeah. um, of <laughs> any of those shows um, I don't recall that at this time um, <laughs> no you know I I I remember sort of we had that was a group that we always had a great turnout for shows both the team and the audience mm-hmm. um, and I remember being uh, cramped on the little uh, stage yeah, at the Shubin um, and I also remember us working through this is good it's bringing it back to me I remember us working through Steve had this like kind of wacky idea about how we were going to be we weren't going to just stand on the side we were going to be set pieces <laughs> for the scene uh, already I, I love having done the podcast with him and hear him, hear him talk about it 
and then hear you very right at the top describe it as this wacky idea. Yeah. <laughs> so you can do you can then cut our podcasts together and do yeah. Steve and Andrew talk about his idea. So you know, um, not everybody in the group and not everybody in the audience was feeling it um, with the with the set pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, you had to really commit to it to make it work. I was game for giving it um, giving it a try, but actually it was a good uh, it was a good example of that place where like you have a director with a strong artistic vision and you have a the actors need to go with it or not go with it. And I think we had a couple of we had a couple of uh, shows where it kind of it just didn't Work right. because we were doing it kind of half sure. baked, and that's when it felt the most weird. And we had a couple of times when we found some really interesting um, things through that. I remember, I think it was one scene that was like uh, a classic improv scene in a saloon <laughs> under the sort of Western theme, sure. um, which can get a little tired, right? If it's if you don't have a good relationship and all that kind of stuff. But I remember there were two of us who were acting as the swinging doors on the saloon. Physically, the folks on the podcast can't see me swinging <laughs> yeah. my swinging yeah, yeah. my arms, obviously. Um, and it just became like really funny, like people walking through the doors, and it found a nice like physical comedy, almost slapstick. Um, yeah piece to that okay uh so hot dish uh comes to an end yes uh and you haven't uh as far as i could tell done much in the way of performing since yeah so hot dish came to an end and then more important for me personally my son was born yeah <laughs> um and so i uh have basically given up publicly performing improv to I now do private shows um, <laughs> in my home, in the car, yeah. uh, on the bus. Occasionally, that's some of my public performances, uh, primarily for an audience of one uh, who's pretty into it. Yeah, he doesn't pay anything. Um, he just costs, um, yeah. but he laughs at pretty much anything. That's I good. Do. Yeah, uh, you got to have that, especially if you're not getting paid. Yeah, especially if you're not getting paid. Yeah, at. yeah. Um, and so just in terms of time, uh, and it was interesting cause after he was born, he saw his first improv at like four months, uh, my, which is a great, that's a great age for kids to see improv mm-hmm. cause they're not really mobile yet. Yeah. Uh, and they're not too loud either. Uh, so my wife brought him to a couple of shows that I think Kristen, Emily and I did. Um, and you know, hadn't, we hadn't really rehearsed before it. And it felt to me like very clumsy pickup basketball. Yeah. And I had sort of gone into it thinking like, oh, you know what? I'll do like little indie shows here and there. Like I really don't have time to be rehearsing. I don't want to be. My wife works um, in the evenings. So I'm home with him a lot in the evenings. So it's hard to rehearse. I really don't want to be away from my family to go to rehearsal. Uh, But I'll just do some shows on the side. And I did a couple of those. And... You know, improv is a muscle, and unless you're training, you know, like I know the basics well enough that I can, you know, fake it through a show without embarrassing myself. But it wasn't the level of performance yeah. that I wanted to be giving. 
Yeah, it, it definitely is a, a muscle mm-hmm. that if you're if you're not working out, mm-hmm. is going to get weaker and weaker yep. and weaker. So that makes sense. Um, and with the with the family mm-hmm. uh, and the job, yeah, uh, I guess it becomes you can't get into a regular practice routine. Yeah. Um, okay. So speaking of of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other side of this is the political side, yeah. uh, the city job side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how did you get involved in work with the city, first of all? Yeah, so I've um, basically been in public service my entire career. Um, I have a real passion for serving the, serving the public and for making the communities that I live in um, better places. So when we moved to Philadelphia, uh, I managed to get a job in the mayor's office of transportation and utilities. I have a transportation uh, background. It's the office that oversees the streets department, which does transportation and sanitation, the airport, which is actually owned by the city, the water department, the city's energy office, and manages the relationships with all the other big owners of of infrastructure. Did you say the airport is owned? Yes. Philly International is owned by Philly? Is owned by the city of Philadelphia. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there are a bunch of airports around the country that are owned by their cities. Atlanta, Denver, Chicago, are, uh, Miami are all owned and operated by their, by their cities. Does Philly have any... Is it independently run or does Philly have... Uh, uh, any kind of oversight over the airport? Oh, it's t- yeah, no, it's run by city employees. They are hired by the city. No tax dollars support the airport. So um, all of the funds that uh, op- pay to operate the airport are paid by the airlines and their passengers who use the airport. And then also generates revenue from the concessions that are at the airport that goes back yeah. into supporting the, the airport. The, the $9... Pepsi's and so now I have to <laughs> I have to dispute you on that one. So at our at Philadelphia International Airport, we have street pricing. So they uh, businesses cannot charge more than they charge in Center City, and they actually do check that. Um, and you really notice that when you're not in at Philadelphia, like at other airports. I was in San Francisco not long ago. And uh, really wanted to buy a bottle of water as five dollars for a bottle of water. Yeah, which is it's kind of crazy. Crazy. Okay, yes. so I mean that's good to know. Philly, yeah. Philly has that kind of oversight that yeah. where we can say we. Mm-hmm. I'm in Philly. Right. Uh, can can say don't do that. Yeah. That's not cool. Yeah. Uh, all right. And there's a lot. And there's a lot of good stuff. And it also gives us the oversight to say things like, for instance, um, beginning this. July as leases turn over on concessions at the airport. So concessions are the food vendors and the clothing stores and all the other things. Folks who work in those stores are going to have to be paid living wages um, now. So folks who are working at the airport are going to see their wages go to $12 um, an hour. Okay. So that's that's good. And previously, you know, the wages, people by and large weren't making minimum wage um, at the airport, but um, you know, people are making eight, nine dollars uh, an hour. It makes a difference in their yeah, lives. Okay. Yeah, that's going to be a significant yep. bump for a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. How? So you're working in the office of transportation, transportation. and utilities. Um, yeah, so I'm working there, um, uh, working for the deputy mayor for transportation and utilities. And then after about a year and a half, we had a very small staff. There were about five or six of us. We were bringing in grant funds. Starting to grow the staff, had about 12 folks. Um, 
we had all been reporting directly to the deputy mayor. She decided um, she didn't want all those direct reports anymore. So I became the chief of staff. So I had everyone, pretty much everyone in the office reporting to me and was managing uh, different programs. So re- reestablished an energy office for the city. The city spends about $100 million on utility bills at its own buildings. It's a lot of money. It is. We have a lot of buildings, too, but it's a lot of money. Uh, And so put together a a team of energy professionals that has brought down the spending by millions of dollars, found ways to generate revenue, increased our use of renewable energies while reducing reducing the costs. Um, And that money is all money that you know, then is available for education, public safety, infrastructure, all the other priorities uh, that the city has reducing pressure on on tax increases. So did some work in the energy sector, um, brought in tens of millions of dollars of grants to support SEPTA and the city. So, for instance, the traffic signals along Woodland Avenue and Bustleton Avenue. So Woodland Avenue in Southwest Philly, Bustleton Avenue in the Northeast. northeast. Yeah. Um, literally from the uh, 50s and 60s. Incredible credit to the people who built those traffic signals that they were still basically operating. Brought in federal funds to replace those with the, some of the latest technology, have them fiber optically connected. So it gives uh, what's called transit signal priority. So the trolley in Southwest Philly, the the uh, trackless trolley um, buses along Bustleton Avenue. Uh, when they come to a uh, a light, it holds the green for them, so they can get they get through. Keeps people moving faster. Keeps whether you're on a bus or driving safer for pedestrians. Uh, so brought in money for that. Brought in money for trails, Schuylkill River Bart Boardwalk. You know that's something that's gotten a lot of attention. But we weren't just doing work in Center City. Um, back out in West Philly and, and Southwest Philly, built something called the 58th Street. Greenway uh, to help connect um, a, a neighborhood that's really struggling, lots of challenges, but provide a really nice recreational amenity and connect it to um, some other amenities. Port Richmond put in a trail to uh, provide the Lower Northeast with some access to the Delaware um, rivers. Did did a whole bunch of things on the grant side, and then um, got working on creating a bike share program for Philadelphia, which uh, was just put into effect, right? Yes, April uh, 23rd. And that's Indigo? Indigo, yeah. Is that how you say it? Indigo? Indigo, that's how I say it. Okay. I'm going to say it the way you say it. All Indigo. Right. Uh, so they went into effect, you said when? April 23rd. Okay. And so how does that work? Yeah, so we're about seven, I got to stop saying we. The system is about <laughs> seven uh, weeks in. There have been more than 85,000 trips on the bike share system. Uh, there are 70 stations around the city stretching from South Philly, up into North Philly, from the Delaware River out to uh, pretty far into West Philly and expanding even further. Uh, The way the the system works is you check a bike out from one of those 70 stations, you check it back into one of the 69 other stations. Um, It's really affordable. For $15 a month, you get an unlimited number of trips that are up to one hour um, in length. If you think you're going to use the system less than three times a month, you can buy a $10 a year membership and pay $4 per ride. Or if you're a tourist or just want to give it a try, you can swipe your credit card and pay $4 per half hour, except on the first Tuesday of every month where it's just a dollar for that first half hour if you want to give it a try. And people 
are loving it. They're using it. It's a great way to save money and a great way to easily get around town. Yeah. Uh, and why was this uh, something that you felt important? So bike share systems have become part of the fabric of thriving cities really all over all over the world, um, but uh, particularly um, in the U.S. So New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Boston, San Francisco, uh, Miami, all have uh, Seattle, all have Minneapolis, Denver, uh, <laughs> all have, all have. <laughs> Dallas, Houston, <laughs> Austin, San Antonio. We're doing all Texas in one like, run. Uh, sounds like the Howard Dean thing. Um, we just need that screen. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, I'll have bike share systems. Um, and it was really important that we bring that to Philadelphia. We wanted to do it differently, though. One of the major criticisms of bike share systems in, in other cities is that despite their incredible potential to have an impact on the lives and the transportation costs of low-income residents, they haven't. Um, so in, in Washington, D.C., survey show users are overwhelmingly um, high-income, young, and white. Um, we wanted to do something differently in Philadelphia and make sure the system worked for all of our residents, and particularly those who stood to benefit the most, which are uh, low-income uh, low income residents. Um, from folks who have been... Um, living in neighborhoods that have struggled economically for years to, you know, our other low-income populations in Philadelphia, like folks in the arts community um, and who are, you know, some folks who are making a choice in some ways to, to live with less, um, less income more than some other um, Philadelphians, but, you know, helping them save money as well. And so we started from uh, day one, making sure that we had stations because uh, if you don't have the infrastructure if you don't have access it's not it's not going to work for you so we made sure there's stations in North Philly made sure there's stations in Point Breeze and Mantua and Palton um, made sure that the system worked for our low income residents and we did that by you know here's a crazy idea talking to people and asking them you know what do you see as the opportunities what do you see as the barriers we heard from um from folks that it, that they needed an hour to be able to use a bike because they didn't want to incur any overage charges. So if you keep the bike out in every other city for more than a half an hour, you pay an extra charge. Some cities it's as little as a dollar that you're paying extra. But for folks who are watching every penny that they spend, the threat of paying extra was a major deterrent. Um, other cities also offer annual passes, so somewhere between $75 and $150. You pay it up front, you have access to the system for the whole year. That was a, a really high barrier to entry for someone with a low income. And frankly, it's also a high barrier entry to someone with a high income who might not be sure that they're going to use right. the the system. Sure. You know, 70 bucks and you're not sure you're going to use it, not sure that's going to work for you. So we did two important things. One, we lowered the barrier to entry. We made it just $15 a month. You can cancel it at any time. Uh, you can pause your membership if you're going away on vacation or you don't think you're going to ride over the winter or you think July is going to be too hot to ride. Um, whatever it is, put you in control. And you have an up, up to an hour to return the bike. Now, what's interesting is... Uh, the system has seen that people are using it just like they do in other places, which is for very short rides. The average length of a ride is is only a mile. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now, 
does the city have any involvement? Is is this like a, a private thing, or is this uh, a joint? Yeah, so uh, it's run? a it's it's a real public private partnership um, in this way. The city owns the infrastructure, so we own the bikes and the stations. We have hired a uh, a Philadelphia based firm called Bicycle Transit Systems, which is actually made up of the people who've launched every other major system in in Philadelphia uh, in the country. A woman named Allison Cohen. Um, who's from Philly, uh, happens to be the nation's foremost bike share expert. She wanted to come home and start a company, and so she's running our bike share system for us. Um, a great story about the bike share system is how little public funding has actually gone into it to provide this incredible public amenity. So we spent $3 million of city capital funds. We have raised almost $15 million dollars of non-city funds to support the system. So um, about a million and a half of federal capital funds, um, a million and even more coming in of foundation funds to help pay for stations and bikes. And then Independence Blue Cross, the sponsor um, of the system, um, is funding, uh, is helping support the system. And, uh, and then we have other sponsors of the system. So there's no ongoing cost to taxpayers. All of the sponsorship and the fees that the users are paying go right back into supporting the system and developing what are called reserve funds. So when we need to replace bikes, when we need to replace stations, we're hopefully not going to, or they're hopefully not going to come back to the taxpayers and say, oh, you know, we need more money to, to pay because, you know, there's... Um, got a lot of needs in this in this city there's a great important amenity to provide and it's a really nice example of how you can take in the scheme of things right so the city has a three billion dollar budget about so three million dollars is not a lot compared to three billion dollars and you can create something that you know in just seven weeks has been used eighty-five thousand times yeah and isn't just a one-time use. No, it's you don't not use just a bike a and then toss it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, and is putting and the, this is a, I think a really important part of this also is so it's it not only saves people money but it creates new economic activity. So one of the things that bike share does is I've I've described it. It's like Concord for the everyman. Um, so you know the Concord cut the travel times between New York and Paris in half. So instead of it being an eight-hour flight, it was a four-hour flight. And a superstar model could walk down the runway for a lunchtime show in Paris, get on the Concorde, and be in New York for an evening show. Great if you're like a global celebrity. Not really meaningful if you're the average person. Um, Now, however, here in Philadelphia, if you are the average person, you can cut your travel time from... If you live in, in North Philly or in Fairmount or in Point Breeze or anywhere else to Center City or to another destination in half. So a trip that was too far to walk before, all of a sudden you can make now. A trip that um, would connect you to transit that just didn't make sense to do before, you can take now. Um, and that spurs new economic activity. And when people have extra money in their pockets because they're saving um, they're saving money, they spend that money right here in, in Philadelphia, by and large. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there any plan? It just rolled out, yep. pretty much. Uh, but is there any plan to expand? Yes. Yeah? So there, um, there absolutely are expansion plans. Um, working on another big launch, the Mayor's Office of Transportation and Utilities for 
this time or for April of next year as when when I left there was what the planning was and bringing in more funds and putting out more stations so adding more stations making a little denser in center city and then also expanding the neighborhood reach so going deeper into south philly um further west in in west philly and uh adding stations in brewery town and francisville and going more into into north philly as well okay uh to get all this put in place and some of the other things that you've done who do you have to deal with in the city Mm mm-hmm you have to deal with a, a lot of different uh, lot of different actors. So you're dealing with a lot of folks within city government. You're dealing with the, the streets department who manages how space on the street and the sidewalks um, is used. You're dealing with the procurement department who helps uh, put out the, the contract for this. You're dealing with the law department who's helping you write that contract. Um, then you're also dealing with folks outside of city government. So all the community groups... Um, who wanted or didn't want um, stations in their neighborhoods? Um, the Friends of Parks group, so you know the Friends of Con Park, uh, little park, little pocket park at Eleventh and Pine, just so excited about being able to bring bike share to their uh, community, have it be part of the park. Other Friends groups less enthusiastic about um, about bringing bike share to their communities, and you know, what is the argument? against having that so you know some of the the arguments that we heard against having it were we don't want more people biking through our park it makes it um, uncomfortable uh, for people who are walking or people who are walking their dogs oh so selfish Um, I'll say that yeah so Mike Marbach just called people selfish I I acknowledge that they had legitimate concerns that um, their city government was listening to. Um, other folks felt like there wasn't enough room um, in the park for it. But, you know, people get it. This has been the experience in other in other cities as well, sure. is that people are resistant to what they don't know. And then there's a waiting list to get a to get a station. So there were, you know, places where folks got in on the on the ground floor and, and other folks who were you know, going to have to wait uh, for their stations. And we were in a very good position of, from the city perspective of, uh, you know, good position and bad position of, but not being able to say yes to, to everybody because we had so many people who, who wanted to bring this uh, asset to their community. Okay. So we have, uh, we have more bikes on the road. Yep. Uh, where does the city sit with bike lanes? Sure. So we have more people who bike to work in Philadelphia than any other as a percentage than any other large city um, in the United States. So that's city over a million. The Passyunk Square neighborhood in in South Philadelphia actually has about 17% of all trips to work occur on bike. That is the same kind of, that's the kind of percentage that you see in neighborhoods in Boulder, Colorado and Santa Barbara, California and Portland, Oregon. Um, So we have just an incredible cycling community in Philadelphia and people choose to bike not because it's healthy or because it's green or because it's a statement of their values. No, by and large, people choose to bike at those kinds of numbers and you're talking about, you know, 12, 14,000 people a day biking to work because it's the least expensive, most convenient way to get where they need to go. Um, over the last eight years, we've put in a lot of bike lanes uh, in the city, built out a network 
taken some traffic lanes um, away to make cycling even easier. So Spruce and Pine Street get the most attention, but Walnut Street, you know, all the way from 23rd to the city line out at, at Cobbs Creek has, a, has uh, a bike lane, put bike lanes in on Fairmount, put bike lanes on Burke Street in North Philadelphia. Um, so all over the city. And the streets department is working to roll out more. Uh, I think there's something like uh, 13 new miles of bike lanes coming in, in in 2015. And it's not an issue of paint it and they will come. It's an issue of paint it to keep up um, with the cyclists and, and provide a, a safe place for people to ride a bike, a safe place for people to drive, and a safe place for people to walk. Uh how do you find that all those three that those three things are fitting together right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think people are getting getting along out there? Um, I think we could be getting along <laughs> a lot better. Um, you know, one of the things that I have noticed, and you see this also borne out in the crash statistics, is drivers are getting a lot more used to cyclists on the road. So you remember, and you remember this as a driver or as a person walking or as a person biking. You remember the jerk. You don't remember all the pleasant interactions that that you have so i ride my bike uh almost every day ride my son uh into daycare on the back of my bike um and you know more times than not in in south philly at least cars are actually yielding um to bikes they're waving me through at a at a stop sign and so i think people are getting it increasingly we got we have a long we have a long way to go in traffic safety they talk about three e's engineering, enforcement, and education. I'd like to add a fourth E of empathy (laughs) Um, because, and particularly for pedestrians, because, you know, everybody is a pedestrian, right? You get out of your car, guess what? You're a pedestrian. You get off your bike, guess what? You're a pedestrian. You take that back. And um, and that's, you know, that's when you're most vulnerable. When you're encased Mm -hmm. in 2,000 pounds of steel and aluminum and plastic, you're pretty safe. Um... When you're on, you know, 25 pounds of, of aluminum, um, you're less safe, but you're kind of danger that you're not when you're walking. You get hit by a bike. It can really, it can really hurt you. Yeah. Um, so you got to just be, people need to be thinking about everyone else. Yeah. I am a pedestrian. I take the yes. bus uh, mm-hmm. and the subway yeah. uh, a lot of places, but for the most part, I walk, right. especially because I live in South Philly. Everything's mm-hmm. walkable. Yep. I walk all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I find myself consistently bothered. Uh, by both uh, bikes and cars mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, you know, bikes being on the sidewalk, yep. cars blowing right through stop signs. Yep. Uh, so there's a, yeah, I would love that that emphasis put mm-hmm. on, put on the, the pedestrian. Um, so with the other, I just mentioned like SEPTA, uh, <coughs> yeah. the other end of transportation. Yeah. Um, there are two things that I hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Every few months, there's a, a shortfall or something in terms of transportation, uh, SEPTA funding, uh, or education funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with the with SEPTA, how how does the city of Philadelphia? What's what's the part we play with SEPTA? Because it is yeah. a private organization, right? So it's a, it's a, what's called a public authority. Okay. So it's a public organization. Um, SEPTA is actually financially in a lot better shape than it was just a couple of years ago because the state took some very important action two years ago to put SEPTA on very stable financial 
financial footing. Okay. They need to take that action to put education on stable, um, unstable financial footing. And Governor Wolf has laid out a, a compelling plan for that. Hopefully the legislature will go along with him. So SEPTA is funded by a combination of federal funds, which come largely by formula to large cities for public transportation. It's funded then uh, by a very significant amount of state funding. And then there's also city funding that goes to SEPTA and then all the fares, uh, the fares that people play, yeah. pay. So because of a, a very significant increase in state funding, SEPTA is uh, going about a major infrastructure rehabilitation plan. Um, one of the incredible uh, benefits of Philadelphia is that we inherited these great um, systems from private companies that were built in the early 20th century. So it's like everyone who was on the Monopoly board, Reading Railroad, Pennsylvania Railroad. That's why you have the Chestnut Hill and the Chestnut Hill West, East yeah. and West line. One was Reading, one was Pennsylvania Railroad. They were competing for customers as that <laughs> part of the city was developing. SEPTA has inherited that. Um, and so we have a very robust regional rail network and an incredible, actually, bus service in the city. Um, and I had uh, seen that more people take the bus in Philly yep. than many other places in the U.S. Yes, that is true. Um, and you don't. And in much of the city, you're not walking more than two bo- blocks before you get to a bus stop, which is great for mobility, particularly for seniors um, and for and for young people. Um, and you know, really for everybody, the buses are full. SEPTA has gone on a, a really great plan of the last. probably like five or six years, basically replacing a tenth of their bus fleet every year. And so that's why, you know, all the time you're seeing new and better buses um, being rolled out. And uh, SEPTA's in a a good place. They're going to get there on the new payment uh, technology. SEPTA key. Yeah, the SEPTA key. Um, A lot of impatience for it, which I get. But if you look at the experience of other cities, a lot of other cities have screwed it up pretty royally mm-hmm. um, in terms of rollout. And the folks at SEPTA are being incredibly diligent about making sure that it works. And it's really complicated to get it work and uh, to get it to work. And I'm confident that when it's released, um, it will work. And the good thing for the public to know is unlike other cities, which have paid billions of dollars for systems that didn't work, SEPTA wrote their contract in a really tight way is they don't pay until it works. <laughs> By and large, so that um, that aligns the incentives well for sure. it to work. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, okay, so let's jump into just the the. I want to hear a little bit about the basics of what city council does, sure, uh, and then talk a bit about mm-hmm. how you yeah. are getting into that. Sure. Uh, so, can you describe the basic function? Yeah. Uh, for a dummy. Yeah. Uh, of what city council does Absolutely. and how it's made up. <clears throat> so city council um, is the legislative branch of of government in in Philadelphia. It is who passes. It's the branch of government that writes and passes laws um, for the city. It's kind of like the Congress of uh, of of the city. There are seventeen members of city council. Ten of those members represent uh, geographic districts. Um, so names that listeners might be familiar with are Mark Squilla or Kenyatta Johnson or Janie Blackwell. 
or Daryl Clark, who's also the council president. Um, he represents a, a district, geographic district. And then there are seven at-large members of city council. So when the city's charter was created in 1952, um, which is sort of like the constitution of the city, it envisioned this legislative body that was going to be able to balance both geographic interests very neighborhood interests and have some people on it who are going to be able to see the bigger picture and, and represent the whole city. So there's seven at-large members. Two of those at-large members are reserved for people who are not members of the majority party. So in Philadelphia, that means for non-Democrats. About 85% of Philadelphians who are registered to vote are registered as, as Democrats. Uh, so you have those, those seven seats. Uh, I am running for for one of those uh, seven seats, and specifically for running for one of the two seats that's reserved for a non-Democrat. I'm since 2013 have been registered as an independent. Okay, uh, so then we'll just jump right into that. Uh, why, why, why are you doing this, Andrew? Yeah, so why I'm are you running. Yeah, so I am running because there is incredible positive momentum in Philadelphia right now. For the first time in 50 years, our population has grown, and it's grown in each of the last seven years. That's a sign of a healthy. That's a sign of a healthy city. Crime is at record lows um, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia hasn't been safer since the 1960s. Um, we've made tremendous strides in sustainability and and livability in in Philadelphia, and you know that reduction in crime, the sustainability and livability pieces, that's drive, helping to drive that, that population growth. At the same time, we face just in serious, incredible, uh, and often heart-wrenching challenges as a city. So still, more than a quarter of all Philadelphians live in poverty. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's much more like a third, because the poverty lines, the federal poverty lines, are, are so low. And these folks are our neighbors. Um, there are neighborhoods with high concentrations of poverty in Philadelphia, but the reality is, poor people live um, all over the all over the city. It's an, an incredible challenge. We are in what feels like and is a sort of perpetual education funding um, crisis. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing that I want more. My wife wants more to send than to send our son to our neighborhood public school, but this this is not about my son or your kids. It's about all of our children, and if we are not um, providing them the resources that they need for uh, an education, we're failing, um, we're failing as a city. And there are still too many Philadelphians who don't feel safe in their own neighborhoods, despite the reductions in crime. So, uh, I am, I am running because we need to accelerate that positive momentum and we need to address these serious challenges. And we need um, council members who are willing to engage deeply um, in this work, work hard, work smart at it. I've spent the last um, decade of my life in public service and... Um, and I want to bring that to you know the legislative branch of, of Philadelphia's city government. A strong and effective city council partnered with a strong and effective mayor um, 
can help address those challenges and make sure we keep moving in the right direction. Cool. I want to unpack a little bit sure. of that, uh, but before we do, you yeah. have a background in improv. Yes. You have a background in politics. Yeah. Um, I've said many times uh, that people within uh, the Congress, mm-hmm. you know, people such as Lindsey Graham, yeah. um, as Mitch McConnell, mm-hmm. uh, John Boehner, yeah. uh, they need to take an improv class. Uh, and and learn the basic concept of agreement, uh, and you know yes and 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 just kind of how people can work together. Yeah. Uh, because right now at that higher level, shit is messed up. Yeah. Uh, pardon my French, but yep. shit is messed up. It is. Uh, so with a background in improv, uh, how do you see those two things kind of yeah. tie together? So I, you know, I think there's a real link. I think the the more even more than the yes and is the listening Listening. and responding authentically. Mm -hmm. So when you think about our greatest political figures, both um, progressive and conservative, so you think about, you know, an FDR and a John Kennedy, and you think about a, a Ronald Reagan um, on the conservative end of the spectrum, and, uh, or Bill Clinton, um, these great politicians all agreed with them or not, they listened and they responded. They responded authentically to the, and that's what I think what people want um, more than anything else. And even if you're disagreeing with someone, but to feel like you know what this person really understands my perspective, they're saying maybe. You know, I need to stand on this principle, and you and I have some different principles, so we're not going to agree. But I understand um, where you're coming from, and I think if we did, politicians did more listening and more authentic responses, right? Because there's nothing also that drives people, myself, more crazy than just feeling like, you know, this politician is BSing me, mm-hmm. right? And there's nothing that we love more than a politician who just talks honestly and authentically um, about where they are even if you disagree with them and if you agree with them you like them all the more mm-hmm. um, so I, I think that listening that listening piece is um, is really key and I think there's another um, important piece about improv and politics that has to do with performance and um, and not getting too far beyond your audience, right? And making sure that you're bringing your audience with you. Mm-hmm. So in um, in improv, you know, and especially when you're running a theater, right? One of the goals is to be, you know, packing the house um, as many nights a week as you can. Yeah. And for improv, that means, you know, putting on entertaining shows. And maybe you try and experiment with some new things and try to push your audience to experience some new, some new styles or approaches or forms. But uh, you get too avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Um, you get too traditional, and you're gonna you're gonna lose your your audience. And and I think the parallel in in politics is you know you can't get out ahead of your public. You need to help bring them along and if you are um, too radical kind of on either end of the spectrum mm-hmm. you're going to lose your you're going to lose your audience you're going to lose your voters you're going to lose the public and you're not going to make the kind of advances that that you want I'm a I'm a pragmatist uh, more than anything and I and I understand how you need to 
my my view of leadership is helping a community and you can be a leader in an improv theater I think actually very much as as you and Greg and a lot of the folks here are at at FIT you can be a leader in your neighborhood group you can be a leader at a corporation you can be a leader Mm -hmm. on city council and it's about helping communities adapt to their environments and thrive in that and thrive in that environment yeah Uh, to that listening and reacting which was great uh, which is absolutely necessary. Mm-hmm. I think one of my main issues, again, with the, the higher level of things, yeah. uh, is that it's so easy to not listen mm-hmm. uh, to the point where they don't even have to meet. Mm-hmm. Like the, that the, the, the Speaker of the House mm-hmm. uh, and the majority leaders and the President are not required to mm-hmm. have regular meetings. That's insane to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so how does the, how does something like that when you kind of bring it all mm. down to city council um, uh, change or stay the same? Yeah, so you know I think um, relationships really matter, and there are a bunch of things that have gone on in Washington that have made those relationships more difficult. So you know there is a shift over time, and par- partially driven by the convenience and affordability of transportation. Where you know it used to be if you were a congressman from you know, somewhere outside of the D.C. metro area, you lived in Washington, D.C., and you, you know, you came home a few times a year to spend time with your constituents, but you were in Washington doing work, and you had personal relationships with your colleagues. Your kids went to the same schools. You went to the same churches or synagogues. You um, had dinner at each other's houses, even if you weren't on the same, of the, of the same party. That's been lost, so those personal relationships have, have been lost. A lot of other folks have observed that. You know, on city council, the, your, these are your, your colleagues are your neighbors, and, and you're with each other a lot. You're all in the same building. Your offices are down the hall from each other, and being able to build those, those effective relationships and have relationships with, with the mayor, but also the mayor's staff, um, and people within government is really critical to being able to get things done. Um, and uh, and you know, I'm that's another actually sort of lesson from improv is sort of how do you build how do you build that trust and those relationships? Right, a great improv team is a team that really trusts each other mm-hmm. um, and knows that you have each other's back and you're going to support each other and um and so you know i i bring a lot of that learning to uh to this job okay when i get it hopefully uh, yeah <laughs> uh and as far as the you talked about like the bigger bigger challenges mm-hmm. such as education yeah uh and and poverty um is there anything you have in mind right now that you think would be able to help those things. I mean, we talked about the the sure. uh, the indigo, which can help in certain ways. Yeah. But is there anything other uh, than that uh, that mm-hmm. can kind of help across the board? Yeah. So um, uh, the answer, in short, is yes. I mean, I think on education, we need some really clear and strong voices on city council that are calling for the full funding of our public schools. Um, Helen Gim, who uh, has made it through as a nominee of Democratic City Council at large, um, who will certainly be elected, has for decades been a, a strong and clear um, voice on that. I think this session of council, we had a, a kind of false debate 
where the two options were either the mayor's proposal, which was a nine and something percent ta- uh, land, uh, property tax increase to give 103 million new dollars to the school or, um, you know, a kind of hodgepodge of funding sources to get to 70 million new dollars, not all of those dollars reoccurring. Um, if I was on council today, we would have, I would have been working hard to get to that $103 million and not have it fall all on, on property taxes. Mm-hmm. Because I think, you know, both the mayor and the city council president were right. The mayor was right. We need to fully fund the schools, the city council president, and many city council members are right in that it can't be totally on the, on the backs of, uh, of property owners. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need people who can, you know, help, help drive towards, towards those deals and stand on principle, but also be a pragmatic actor. Yeah. Uh, I mean, personally, I would be, I would pay more in taxes mm-hmm. if I owned a place, yeah. if I knew that it was going to like, <laughs> almost as if I could track where the, the tax mm-hmm. dollars yeah. I spend go. Yep. Uh, so if I knew that, you know, okay, I'm paying a percentage more mm-hmm. on this or that, yeah. but it's going to schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I mean, I think that the... We talked about the two two of the big challenges, which are uh, poverty mm-hmm. and education. Yep, uh, I think they're very, very, very closely linked mm-hmm. together uh, when you start early enough. Yeah. Um, but I get annoyed, and this mm-hmm. is why I yeah. uh, I'm not running um, <laughs> at people that disagree <laughs> uh, that that are not willing to put out more mm-hmm. uh, for what seems to be a very understanding uh, a, a very a very good cause like like the kids like I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones do you I actually don't watch Game okay of Thrones, in Game but... of Thrones there uh, spoiler alert people uh, there are uh, warring kingdoms right. uh, and then outside those warring kingdoms there is a uh, what's called the Night's Watch mm-hmm. and this is going somewhere trust me <laughs> uh, and then past the Night's Watch are the what they call the White Walkers yeah. they are they can destroy everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Night's Watch is there uh, to kind of protect them. And no one else is listening in the Seven Kingdoms <laughs> to do anything about this. Right. Uh, so to me, like poverty and, and education, uh, are that's the problem we need to pay attention to. Yeah. Not a lot of these uh, tiny problems. Um, I mean, not necessarily ignore mm-hmm. those problems by any means. Yeah. Um, but... It just seems like it's always getting kicked down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll send a few dollars. We'll send a few yeah. men to the wall. That right. should uh, that should hold back the walkers. Right. We'll send a few more. Oh, they you know uh, they, they broke they broke through. There was a big right. battle. Okay, well let's uh, let's see what we can do about this. Yeah. Um, so how do how do we uh, make it, <laughs> make it important? Yeah. So. Uh, one on your first point about understanding where your tax dollars go. We've made a. There's been a lot of progress in the last few years in terms of open data sharing information. Uh, both the governor and the mayor's office uh, have done a really nice job of showing going to websites and see where your dollars are are actually going on the on the education um, front. Uh, I think you know there is a there is a problem of you know taking on the difficult decisions and. Um, and making sure that we are funding things where they need to be. And it's not just because it's a good cause, right? And we have a good, you know, why shouldn't we be 
supporting our children more. We also have great leadership at the school district right now mm-hmm. in, um, in Superintendent Height, who's laid out, who's proven himself over the last few years. He's a very capable leader and executive, has laid out a, a very compelling plan for, um, for the school district for improving performance. Um, and, you know, I think we ought to be supporting that that kind of leadership. I think there are times when if you're not feeling good about the leadership, you say, well, you know what, I'm not going to be supporting it with more dollars. But this is a time when when I, for one, think we really need to be standing standing with that leadership in a serious way and getting us out of this crisis mode where every year it's more and more and more. You know, this year the, the ask was somewhat different in saying, look, give us this reoccurring source of funds and we're and we can break ourselves out of this crisis for a while and provide some stability you know that's what we that's what we saw happen at septa we were talking about before state passed a very large transportation bill raised gas taxes to support it you know people haven't stopped driving no one has stormed the capital with pitchforks um and oh, Se- get a pitchfork. Right. <laughs> and SEPTA is making, you know, incredible investments in their infrastructure, putting people to work, and is going to have a much better system system for it. It wasn't an easy vote for a lot of legislators to take, um, but you know, if you want to, you know, if you want to be taking easy votes, making easy decisions, um, you know, I don't, I don't think you're really up up for the job. Yeah, I mean, so that's what. Uh... I don't understand why that's not the the longer term mm-hmm. isn't everybody's goal. Mm-hmm. That, that seems so weird to me. Uh, like mm-hmm. it's so nice right now with with SEPTA because, like you mm-hmm. you are saying, uh, they're they're redoing, uh, renovating yeah. a whole lot yeah. of different areas. I, I'm impacted by the 69th Street terminal mm-hmm. project right yeah. now. Um, I think it's supposed to be done in September yeah. or October or something. Um, but yeah, there's a whole lot of different things, and we're not hearing about fare increases mm-hmm. anytime. You know, yep. they may have some union thing yeah. that happens down mm-hmm. the line, which usually impacts yep. that kind of thing. Uh, but for now, mm-hmm. everything seems okay because yeah. everybody kind of put their heads together and you know yep. came up with something. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it would be awesome for that to happen with mm-hmm. uh, with education and you know a lot of the other. And it, and it issues and it needs to happen and it and it also we need to find sensible solutions and middle ground on things. So, for instance, on charter schools um, and the sort of ongoing debate about charter schools. I think if we go back to the original mission of of charter schools and focus on that and the original mission, which has been forgotten by a lot of folks now, was to create. Schools schools, publicly funded schools, where you could experiment with new models of instruction and new models of supervision and see how they worked. And if they didn't work, stop doing them. And if they worked well, try to transfer them to the public schools. Instead, what we've, um, and there are some incredible examples of that. So Independence Charter School is one example. A number of the Mastery um, Charter Schools, the Friere um, High School, some Really good, really good examples. But we've also, you know, allowed for a proliferation of schools that are failing, charter schools that are failing the students, that are making, lining the pockets of executives, some of those executives, for-profit executives, some of those executives, heads of nonprofit uh, organizations, and are 
costing our public schools significant resources. So this is shouldn't be a question about, you know, do we get rid of all charter schools or do we send more money to just expand charter schools? It's like, no, no, let's let's figure out where the value is, make sure we're investing there and make sure we're not um, wasting, you know, wasting money on, on things that aren't aren't working. Yeah. Uh, I do want to wrap this up. Yeah. Uh, so the last question I have is if you could talk to, uh, if you do like a door-to-door yeah. and you're knocking on someone's uh-huh. door saying uh, why they should vote for you, yeah. what what do you say? So so here's, here's my pitch, which I've been given a lot lately. There are seven members of city council at large. Two are reserved for the non-majority party, non-Democrats. I've been a registered independent since 2013, and I don't believe that we should be stuck with just the options that the Republicans give us in November. For the past decade, I've been making government work smarter and harder um, for our citizens, and I am going to be on council a strong and clear voice for public education, for making sure that we are collecting all of the taxes that are owed to us before we're increasing taxes, for making sure that we are assessing property values fairly and accurately, for making sure that we're investing uh, in community resources like parks and libraries and and our streets. And, um, And lastly, being someone who comes to the fourth floor of City Hall, that's where City Council is, with a set of experiences um, that can make me effect, an effective partner with our next mayor, but also allow me to make sure that we're holding our next mayor accountable. And that's why I'd like your vote, Mike Marbach. You got it. Uh, in November? In November. In November. November uh, I would actually like to have you on again, maybe yeah. closer to November, if you would yeah. uh, be willing to do that. I'd love that. Uh, but for now, thank you very much for, uh, for your time, yeah. your honesty, and for getting close. I will, I will give you... One last plug, if I may. So visit andrewstober.com. You go there. You can sign up to volunteer. You can also sign up to um, donate. And I have gotten donations as small as $10, as large as $1,000. And fundraising is going well. But seriously, you know, I'm running this race citywide. It costs a lot to reach voters. Um, And so... Every uh, every little bit helps on both the volunteering side and on uh, and the donation side. So andrewstober.com. And also, is it at Andrew Stober? It is at Stober of Philly. Stober of Philly, okay. On, um, on, Twitter. on Twitter. All right. So follow me there. Cool. Thanks All right. a lot. Thanks, you.